We got this, man. We got this by the ass. Why doesn't he have to wait a few minutes? Tonight is Mohawk night. If you had a Mohawk, you could go in. Smells like they're cooking a goddamn cat over there. Because you say I for me. The man goes broke, he can't handle it. The man is on tilt. You want to hear any more? Two dogs. Lick it up, baby. Lick it up. Welcome to Pure Cinema Podcast. Today's episode is dedicated to the actor who lived his entire life cycle to its fullest, Mr. Harry Dean Stanton. R.I.P. Ordinary fucking people, I hate them. <sighs> Me too. What do you know, Keith? See, an ordinary person spends his life avoiding tense situations. Repo man spends his life getting into tense situations. Assholes. Let's go get a drink. Tense situations, kids. Get in five or six of them a day don't mean shit anymore. I mean, I've seen men stabbed. It means shit. Yeah, I've seen guns, guns too. They don't mean shit. But that's when you got to watch yourself. Here, I'll handle it, pal. Try to settle down. <laughs> okay. Have a nice day. Night. Night, day, R.I.P. Indeed. Hey man, how's it going? Good. It's going good, sir. I I, I, <laughs> I was gonna say this is a really uh, interesting idea for an episode that I obviously fully give credit to you for, and I'm hoping the listeners will will enjoy it as much as I enjoyed kind of going through the process of it and thinking about it. Yeah, it's one of the one of the ones I've most enjoyed thinking about uh, structurally. It's it came from um, there's a, a pretty cool movie site. Uh, I use Letterbox most of the time now, but uh, a few years ago before Letterbox, there was a site that is very different, really called Movie, uh, and I just started using it a lot early on. I added a lot of titles to their database, and they were the first kind of list making site uh, for movies that had a real you know deep run of movies, but maybe more art house uh, sensibility than Letterbox is definitely you know everything. And this is a list I made uh, one day. Not the, the, the films I'm going to talk about today might not even be on that list because uh, this was a few years ago. But the idea I had at the time was to do basically I call, we're calling this life cycle. And even though, of course, there's many uh, in-between moments of life, and this is a very general version of it, I looked at um, childhood, adolescence, what I was calling the 20s drift or, you know, the 20s, uh, adulthood, and then the twilight years. And so what, for that list, I was doing five films for each period. So it was like, you know, one to five was childhood, six to ten adolescence. So, uh, so yeah, I, I mentioned this to you, I think, early in season one, and we kind of kept putting it off, I think, until we were ready to tackle it. Yeah, but I, I wrote my list or started my list back then and mm. have done some fine-tuning and changing, but I just thought it was an interesting idea. And I'm, I'm hoping people will look at the title of the episode and, and again – not not like silent cinema where they know what it is, but with this they won't know what it is. I'm hoping they'll be willing to investigate because um, I think there's going to be some interesting films that we'll talk about here. Yeah, and I hope we can do more like these, not not, not necessarily all serious or like this kind of uh, format, but just like, you know, things that you can't tell exactly what they are from the title, you know, where you have to dig a little deeper. When I had Jump Cut, I would do a top five on the board, on a chalkboard, and there would always be super bizarre, uh, some of the things we would do, but that was always one of the fun things every month was thinking about what that was going to be. Uh, yeah, I got to say, a few of my absolute favorite films of all time are on this list, and uh, one thing that I don't cheat too often on our show uh, with doubles, but this time I had a lot of 
some of my absolute favorite films are there's a couple on this list that are next to impossible to find so i wanted to still mention them but also have another more accessible pick a couple of them are foreign films that are just for whatever reason there's no real distribution you know they're youtube maybe but anyway so you know we'll, we'll probably uh, go all over the map but i do think the reason these these i don't know i don't know about you man but I was a pretty, you know, kind of existential 20-year-old, loved reading that kind of literature and stuff. But then now I'm I'm not. Now I think about just time a lot more than I used to. I just think about how fast time moves. Um, you know, kids speed that up a lot. But, you know, childhood was just full of just so much time and space and wonder. And then adulthood is really different. <laughs> you know, it's crunch time and you're always doing you, – every second is accounted for in full and it I don't want to be morbid or depressing saying it passes you by, but it kind of does. Uh, and you really don't notice it. If it's that um, John Hughes line, this will be the best time of your life. You just won't know it from she's got to have it. I think no, she's not. She's not. She's got to have it. Um, oh, uh, she's having a baby. She's having a baby. Yeah. Uh, it's like that, that line like cuts through me like a fucking knife in my heart. When I heard that line, when I was a bit older, it was just one of those things where you're like, Oh Yeah. Like you, when you are truly happy, you're just not going to even be thinking about it because you're looking for the next thing, especially in your you know twenties and early thirties. I think uh, so. I don't know. I, I, I think about all these periods have a lot of. I, I think about them a lot, and then it's interesting once you get to the kind of la- last one because we're not there. So it's a projection. So it's, it's the only of these ones that of these age groups we haven't actually experienced. So it's kind of an interesting to see where we go with that. Yeah. No. I. I do think about time a lot too, just as far as how my relationship with it has changed. Like you say, as you get older, it, it seems like it's moving faster. And yeah, I don't know. And when, again, you mentioned children, when they come into the picture, there's something about that that just, I don't know, it just messes with everything. It messes with the whole continuum, as it were. Um, and not necessarily in a bad way, but in a way that you're just like, holy smokes, where did that eight years go or whatever, you know? It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 fascinating. So I mean, I'm I'm, I'm super curious. I, I love this one because there's literally no way you could predict which uh, what kind of films the other person is going to pick and how you interpret this. Is it are you interpreting through a lens of hey that reminds me of my childhood, or are you interpreting I saw that when I was a child, or or yeah. are you you know like it could be any. I have no idea. You know. Yeah, I'm, I'm I tend to be more literal, I guess, with a lot of this yeah. stuff. That's how my brain works, but. But th- but that is pretty open to interpretation, and I think when and if the listeners decide to make their own lists, and I think they should, because this is a fun little category. It's that, a good one for sharing, for sure. Yeah. Like, I would love to share, have people share it, and we'll retweet it, and like kind of, so people can kind of get a feel for how you interpret it. Yeah. So should I go? Yeah, let's start with uh, childhood, childhood, whatever that means to you. Okay, childhood. Well, I mean... I had I had a bunch that uh, I was thinking about, but the one that I landed on is one that I've sort of been a fan of for a long time, and I definitely doesn't. I don't I don't know that a lot of people think of it as like a childhood classic because I don't think that many people have seen it. Ultimately, it's called The Little Fugitive, and it's from 1953. Hey, Mister, you're laying on my pants. Sportsman, gourmet, slugger extraordinary, this is the little fugitive, the kid who's going to capture your heart. He's got a sharp eye for the odd chance, a quick hand for a fast buck, 
and he's headed for the biggest adventure of his little lifetime. An adventure that will take you from the gasping heights of the parachute drop to the secrets that hide under the boardwalk in a revelation of life and love where there's more of it per square inch than any place else in the world. And it's basically the story of this little boy named Joey who's like this bratty seven-year-old kid from like a tough Brooklyn neighborhood is sort of handed off to his older brother for the day basically and he his brother's really pissed because he's like mom I was gonna go to Coney Island for my birthday and she's like I'm sorry you know you'll, you'll, you can go another time I, I have to go to work or whatever so it's one of those things where you know you leave your kid alone with their brother who's not I, I want to say he's like maybe three years older or four years older but still leaving them alone in the city to just sort of run around <laughs> just feels like a whole different time but um so the the older brother kind of gets fed up with the kid kids like obnoxious whiny nature play with me lenny no mom said you should take care of me i want to play stop pestering me and his friends play a cruel prank on him wherein they make him think that he's killed his brother <laughs> and the kid runs off to Coney Island and sort of spends the full day there and night like exploring Coney and just kind of being on his own and so it has a, the feeling of like a little bit of a silent comedy but it's you know fully a sound movie and everything but it's very observational very sort of fly on the wall and kind of quasi-documentary style in a certain way. Like, lo- feels like, not Cassavetes or anything, but, you know, it's just, it's it's a gritty black-and-white kind of city movie. And um, there's something really charming about it and something really innocent about it that I just, I don't know, it just really hooks me every time. You know, I'm, I don't know if you've ever seen this one. I haven't seen that one. Who's it by, do you remember? Uh, the director... Yeah, it's not. It doesn't ring a bell. No, I don't know this director that well. Uh, I know Kino put out a Blu-ray of it not that long ago, but I don't know this director in terms of. I feel like he he's one of those directors that didn't do like a whole bunch of stuff. I could be wrong though. Let me look at this guy. Yeah, Ray Ashley and Morris Engel are the. They're, it's like dual directors. Oh, where? Um, but they they didn't really do many other films. Hmm. So I think this might be their only directed film. Am I correct in thinking that? No, it looks like Morris Engel did a, f- a few more things. But um, but anyway, uh, very unique and neat little sort of coming of age, childhood kind of you know New York movie. It could have been on my New York list, honestly. Yeah, I had a few of those left, right? Cool. My... Uh... My one is uh, is about a six year old. It's it's just one of my favorite art house foreign films of all time, and it, it's it's a film. The first time I saw it, I didn't fully understand, and I saw it years later, and it just went to the top of my list. It's uh, it's set in 1940 in Spain, and it's about a little girl who the uh, movies come to the town, and everyone just watches it together like in a town hall, and, and she watches Frankenstein from 1931 for the first time, and basically after she sees this film. She starts to kind of kind of drift into her fantasy world and the film the film echoes things that start happening in her life and she uh, stumbles across a wounded soldier from the other side and she kind of treats him as if he's Frankenstein and, and, and kind of creates this relationship. It's the film is called The Spirit of the Beehive. Uh, 
uh, by Victor Risse from 1973. And it's just one of those stunning films it, on two levels. Uh, the visual style uh, of the direction and cinematography is just astounding. But even more than that, it's this little girl is one of the most beautiful uh, presents uh, I've ever seen in a movie. She's just she her sense of wonder of watching Frankenstein is like watching Frankenstein again for the first time. And it's and it's really her name's Anna Torrent, the little girl. And it's truly incredible. And years later, I hadn't thought about the movie for a long time. And I was watching uh, Monty Hellman's uh, Road to Nowhere, which I talked about on the films on filmmaking uh, episode. And in that, the director uh, makes his girlfriend, uh, who's the actress of the movie, watch movies that he loves uh, to try to kind of get her to understand who he is. And one of the main movies he makes her watch is this movie. And I remember asking Monty about that because I knew it was one of his favorite movies. And he said, actually, he had tried to get the cinematographer of this film, whose name was uh, Luis Cuadrado, to shoot, which movie was Iguana, I believe. He wanted uh, this guy. So he he uh, looked into it. I think he went to, was go, went to Spain to find the guy and found out he had died, which was a real shame. So, But what he ended up getting was the guy's assistant. Uh, well, no, he ended up uh, getting trying to get the guy's assistant, but then that guy fell through too. Anyway, that's that's a anticlimactic part of it, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it'll come back around. The reason it's fucking amazing, the story of this movie, is because the cinematographer, Louis Quadrado, was going completely blind while he was shooting this film, and by the end of it couldn't see anything. And the way he would light the film, he would go onto the set and he would ask his assistant to describe how everything looked to him. And then he would dictate how to light it from that. And that's why somebody told Monty to go find the guy's assistant. (laughs) Because if you want a guy to light the movie like Spirit of the Beehive, look for the guy's assistant who had to do it, you know, because the guy was blind. And then once he went blind, he committed suicide, weirdly enough. Oh. I mean, just what I mean, he, you know, he's, it makes sense in a, <laughs> when yeah. you think about it. But it, it, it's those kind of things just add to the lore of this. It's an utterly astounding film about uh, childhood. It's also fairly political uh, because of the backdrop of war. But I feel like it never overshadows the, the, the story of childhood and wonder and innocence, really. Innocence in a world that isn't innocent and how those two things contrast. Another way children are used, however, is to help us see the world of the adults around them through fresh eyes. To take the familiar and make it seem strange. That's what I want to look at now in Spanish director Victor Erice's melancholy The Spirit of the Beehive, set in 1940 during the grim early period of General Franco's fascist regime. It's part of a small but distinct tradition of filmmaking, where the horrors of war and its aftermath are made even more heartrending because we see children living through them. And it's just funny how you can watch a movie that's nothing like, say, your childhood geographically and yet still feel connection to that because movies were such a kind of big thing for me at a young age in terms of my connection to things. And I remember seeing Frankenstein for the first time pretty young and uh, being quite scared and terrified of the ideas. And So anyway, it, if you haven't seen this, it's one of those weird things. I've never understood Criterion Collection has it on DVD but not Blu-ray, and I've never understood that because it's one of the best-looking movies of all time so there must be a reason why they haven't been able to put this on blu-ray yet i just don't know what it is do you no i don't and i've kind of been waiting for that because i haven't seen the movie and i remember you mentioning monty being a fan of it and i think you said you were a fan too back on that earlier episode and Mm. so i put it in my netflix dvd queue and i've been circling it for a little while but i'm kind of hoping for for some kind of blu-ray for it because i really want to see it 
the DVD is of a high quality. Don't get me wrong. It's a yeah. really good DVD. It's just, you know, you might as well wait for Blu-ray. I, I feel, because I watched this again, the most recent time I watched it was at Monty's, and I believe he had some sort of Blu-ray, but it must have been like a Spanish one or something like that. And Victor Arise only made a couple other films, and his other film, one of the, his other films called El Sur, called The South, which is kind of a teen uh, character, is like one of the other best movies I've ever seen. Like, I couldn't believe it when I started. I was like, oh my God, this guy only made like a couple films, and they're all pretty amazing. Uh, just really quickly, so I, as I said, I'd be cheating a bit. I kind of want to leave breadcrumbs for people to find other things I just think are astounding from these age groups that are not talked about and kind of off the beaten tracks uh, this episode. So uh, one thing I think you should look out for, uh, there's a childhood trilogy by a guy called Bill Douglas, a Scottish filmmaker that's available from the BFI. And the first two parts are super short. They're like first one's like 20 minutes. Next one's like 40. Last one might be an hour. Um, and each one, it's kind of like the original boyhood. Each one charts this one kid character growing up. Um, but the first part called my childhood it's kind of like boyhood, but more surreal, and it's shot in black and white, and it's about a very poor family in Scotland in the 40s, and it's so phenomenal. It's like one of those things I couldn't – I'm not a big – I wouldn't say I'm kitchen sink realist guy when it comes to uh, British uh, cinema. It's that period – I don't want to say bores me. When it's at its best, it's great, Ken Loach and stuff, but it does kind of – it's a bit of a put-off to me. This is like much more surreal and strange, but still – in the, meant to be in this kind of realistic world fantastic if you can find it from the 70s and then I, I had to also just quickly mention from my my country New Zealand I had to mention what I always say is the best New Zealand film ever made Vigil I think I'm dying granddad aren't we all by Vincent Ward from 1984, one of the only films to from New Zealand to uh, be at Cannes. Um, and it's just about a little girl who lives on a farm who uh, witnesses her father's death. And then this kind of hunter moves in uh, to help her family on the farm. And he's like very threatening. And she's, she's literally having her, you know, coming of age moment. And she's, you know, only like 10 or 11. And it, and it's, Every time I think about this movie, I think of home, but I also think of like my mother because my mother grew up on a farm, a very isolated rural town. So it's a movie that means a lot to me, and I just wanted to include it in this part for anyone who hasn't seen many New Zealand films, for instance. Uh, this one is just pure power. It's, it's This director very much was channeling like Tarkovsky and directors like that. It's a very powerful little film. Is that any, That's hard to see, you said? That one's, I mean, in America, it's probably trickier to find. I mean, there's easy to find DVDs and stuff on, um, you know, online of it. I don't know if it has an American release at all, to be honest. Okay. But it's not, it's not tricky. Uh, I mean, my childhood is also available through BFI DVD, so uh, these ones aren't impossible. They're just not probably common in America. Cool. No, I've never heard that. I've never heard of that one at all. Of course, you, you know Vincent Ward because he was meant to do Alien Three. <laughs> oh, there we go. Okay, uh, he's the one who you know had planned. I mean, it's basically more or less his look of the planet and uh, style, but just he wasn't there, and his would have been a lot more opulent. Uh, his version of it. He also made like What Dreams May Come and things oh, like that. Okay, that okay. was kind of him on the slide a little, in my opinion. Like that wasn't him at his peak in my in my mind. Cool, cool. Um, so now adolescence. Adolescence. I had. A couple that didn't that I almost picked. Well, I don't want to step on any of your picks. You uh, won't. Okay. Trust me. No, you're right. I, I, <laughs> based on sure conversations, um, I almost went with Kenny and Company. Boy, this guy's a real asshole. I don't know. No asshole. Asshole? Yeah, that's it. Asshole. <laughs> asshole. <laughs> 
the uh, um, I still haven't seen it. That's the one I'm oh, still playing. Oh, nice. So. Yeah, I want to. I'll we'll do that for a movie night sometime. Yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah, that's uh, Don Coscarelli film. It's I think his like third or four, I forget, but it's pre Phantasm, obviously using the same um, main kid as the kid from Phantasm, and it's just a great again sort of coming of age kind of story about some kids in the middle 70s just hanging out in their neighborhood they the, it, there's one part of the movie that takes place at Halloween and so there's some cool stuff with that but it's just kind of like a little episodic story that's just really endearing and I, I just have a real soft spot for that one I also almost went with ladies and gentlemen the fabulous stains mm. be yourselves these guys laugh at you they've got such big plans for the world but they don't include us so what does that make you just another girl lining up to die. Yeah. A uh, great unsung and for a long time unavailable movie about a girl punk rock band um, led by Diane Lane. And they play this little, this group of like very young teens starting this band uh, after, you know, she gained some celebrity for like walking out on a, like a, some kind of job or something that she had. I, I don't, I don't know, but she gets on the news for like, for some kind of civil disobedience or unrest. I forget what it is, but then she sort of starts to parlay that into this band thing that they're doing. And they start touring, touring with another punk band that has Ray Winstone in it. And <laughs> it's, it just, it, it's a little bit downbeat. It's a really interesting movie. It's available on DVD and digital, definitely worth looking at. But I decided to go with a different Diane Lane movie, and this one's called A Little Romance. Something extraordinary has happened in Paris. Something shocking. Something shattering. Something magical. It started small, but it got out of control. It's just a little romance. He was looking at you, kid. But it's everything. I met a boy. Fantastic. Are you in love? Fabulous. Yeah. Formidable. <laughs> there is an old Venetian legend which says that uh, if two lovers kiss in a gondola under the bridge of size at sunset, they will love each other forever. Bingo. Mm, I don't know this one. I don't yeah. think. From 1979, directed by George Roy Hill, and it's kind of like this story of two 13-year-old kids. Um, one of them, it's set in Paris, and one of the the boy is a Parisian kid whose dad is a cabbie, and Diane Lane plays a 13-year-old whose mom is she's working on a film set or she's hanging out with uh, this film director. So, so. But she's married to this other guy. Anyway, she seems to be really into the film director, and so that kind of goes where it goes. But um, her mom is played by Sally Kellerman. So anyway, Diane Lane's going to school in France because her parents are over there, and she meets this French boy who's like a total film nut. Like the opening, of the literal open of the mo- opening of the movie is this kid watching like a montage short like sequences of him watching Butch and Sundance, The Big Sleep, I think Hustle with Burt Reynolds hmm. and True Grit in the theater. And, you know, he's like repeating lines from Bogart and, you know, he might be, he might be a little bit annoying to some people, this kid, but, but I think that's a, it, it's hard for me not to respond to uh, a character like that right out of the gate, you know? 
So um, he's got a poster for Taxi Driver and White Lightning in his room. I mean, come on. So anyway, the two of them meet because he's into movies and he and he wants to. He happens onto this film set where they're shooting this movie with uh, Broderick Crawford's in the movie. He's kind of playing himself. He's playing an actor like himself, and the kid like walks up to him and asks him about some old movie that he was in and with Bogart, I think, and the guy, and he can't remember, you know, it's just like this really anticlimactic sort of interaction. But so anyway, they, they, the two sort of have a meet cute and they decide to meet later and they run across this uh, older British dude played by Laurence Olivier who they have tea with and he tells them this story about how if they go to this certain place uh, on a gondola at this certain time, then they will be in love forever. And mm. so they kind of sort of fall into that little thing, but there's, you know, other little drama with her family and with his family and, and stuff like that. But it's, it's a really endearing, it feels like a movie that Wes Anderson must be a fan of, you know, it's got the precocious kids and I don't know if you watch it, it, it just feels like something that he could easily have made or could adapt into his own work. And, it's it's just got a really nice lighthearted feeling for the most part most part but um there's some drama to it i don't know i just like the kid and diane lane is just one of my favorites i think she's just you know so i don't know she's got such a presence you know oh yeah young diane lane i'll watch in absolutely anything i just, just I, anything yeah i same here and i just think she's never lost that thing she's one she's got that you know like lauren bacall like type wattage if you will and uh so even at a young age i think she's just really great and i always find her compelling so it's a it's a really neat little movie and it's not one that uh i feel like george ray hill isn't talked about all that much these days and and this one even less so definitely worth a look yeah adolescence is like i mean i'd say many of my favorite movies fall into this category i love coming of age uh cinema in all different genres. My my absolute favorite is so hard to find that uh, that's why I'm doing two here, but I'm going to start with it and it's it's a deep dive. I found a a DVD I don't know on one of these weird sites. Um I don't think it was super happy fun. I think it was it might have been. Uh it was it was difficult to find, but I have seen that it is on YouTube and other things like that even though I, you know, recommend not seeing the film. Uh is it translates it's a French film too. It's funny. It's, it's got a very similar title to the one you're just talking about and is also in France. Uh My Little Love Affairs is the translation. I think it's a uh, petite Amorceuse and I can't I can't speak French or shit as you can tell. Uh it's directed by Jean Eustache uh, from 1974 who uh has another film that appears on this list in a second. He only made uh, two features, so it's kind of remarkable. Uh, he, weirdly enough, is another suicide. Uh, how weird is that? As a director, he actually uh, had an accident um, in his 40s. He's also, he also appears in uh, Goddard's Weekend in a sequence. But he made these two features that are, are literally perfect. And this film is, uh, they were doing retrospect of his work in New Zealand. I got to see this on 35. And this is just, I think it's one of the best coming-of-age movies ever filmed, just like period it is so perfectly it basically starts with this like 11 12 year old boy who hangs out with his friends and they're really innocent they're really kids you know and and he lives with his grandmother in a small town and he his mother i can't remember why he goes but his mother sends for him uh and he goes to live with his mother now he's in a very tiny apartment with her lo- her lover and it's more you know a little more of a city she can't afford to keep him in school so she gets him like a an apprenticeship in a in a moped repair shop and it's basically an entire 2 hour movie about a young boy watching other kids watching 
adults basically trying to learn about sex and relationships and girls through observations and then these little vignette interactions he has with other girls and and then basically towards the end you know you can't really spoil a movie like this you know he goes back you know to stay with his grandmother again but at the end and hangs out with his old friends but clearly he has matured you know without aging him he is like a different person now and so he's like got all these experiences and it's just it's observed with such i felt like i did when i was i mean because i really you know uh, I mean, this sounds cheesy. Of course, all guys love, you know, not all guys, but, you know, many, many uh, heterosexual guys love girls when they're young. But I really just was, I don't want to say obsessed, but when, especially when I was like, you know, 13 or something, just always thinking about them and, and just totally fascinated. You know what I mean? Uh, not just sexual, just like a fascination with them. And I think that's what this really gets to the heart of. But the, the nice kicker for, you film fans who are otherwise are like, I have no idea what this, who this person is. Uh, it is shot by Nestor Alamandros. Nice. Uh, so Mr. Days of Heaven shoots the, <clears throat> this movie and makes it one of the best looking, you know, just perfectly where everything's kind of brown and just, it just, I don't know. It's one of those movies that uh, you can, tr- you will completely transport into it if you see it. Uh, if you like these kind of movies, you know, it's definitely not a, a mainstream story. It's more like vignettes of his, uh, of his time. But in terms of uh, a boy's relationship to to girls and that kind of for key formation coming of age period, it's absolutely one of the best movies I've ever seen. Uh, and he's such an interesting director. And I'll bring him up again in a little bit because that one's so hard to find. I do want to also uh, talk about one, uh, maybe surprising, not to you. It won't be surprising to you that I'm going to mention this movie. And I've talked about it a lot lately, and it's been on my brain a lot the last few years because I think it's really one of his best films. And that's going to surprise you because it is Martin by George Romero. My name is Martin. I'm 84 years old. People think I'm crazy when I tell them how old I am. I'd like to be normal. I just have a sickness. The only way I can survive is by drinking blood. It's not easy living the way I do. I have to be careful all the time. But I'm pretty good at it. I think as I get older, I get better. I haven't been caught yet. Martin, another kind of terror. From 1978, and even though it's a, on the surface, it's a vampire film, for those who haven't seen it, it really doesn't read to me that way in the long run. And the more I think about that movie, the more I think it's just a sexual coming of age story that's under the guise of a vampire film or a character who thinks he's a vampire. But really, I think it's about hormonal changes and desire and wanting to do stuff with a woman, but feeling dirty and ashamed because of religion uh, that's been beaten into this character. And then I think Romero is so smart that he knows he can use the genre and he can use the idea of a vampire film to br- bring out these things and, you know, reach a broader audience with it. But it's it's got a you know great central performance. And it's just a young man who literally thinks he's a vampire and he has these fantasies about what he's going to do before he kills a woman. And they're, you know, they're very much in line with what Dracula, <laughs> a Dracula type scenario uh, romantically. Uh, and then it never goes that way. And it's always very uh, ugly and matter of fact and banal. And it kind of charts his uh, relationship with a couple of people and largely his uncle, who's very religious religious in Pittsburgh and is trying to, you know, uh, trying to change him in a sense. And it's, it's just, 
you know, I think if you see it through the lens of a coming of age movie uh, and not even thinking about it as a horror film, even though it works as a horror film, too, on a list like this, I think maybe you'll get the right attention that it deserves. And, and no movie. It's definitely my list of a couple movies I want most on Blu-ray. But unfortunately, Richard Rubenstein, the producer, is still holding very tightly onto these films, uh, looking for big money. But um, yeah, I wanted to put Martin on there just so people sort in this context. No, that's a great, a great choice. I mean, obviously, you know, I'm a big fan and I think... I can't remember if I brought it up on the show, but I think it's maybe my favorite Romero film. Mm. I had to I had to decide that on the new shot, latest Shockwaves where we did our Romero tribute, and I think it it is right now. I mean, Dawn, Dawn is the one that I it's just that is like his best movie to me. Yeah, I love Dawn. I mean, but Martin's the one that just recently I've really I find myself probably because it's like a great little indie, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, I I God, I hope. I mean, I'm really excited for that Arrow box set that's coming next month. It's a bummer that Martin couldn't be a part of it. Yeah, I am, but there's nothing on that that I think is going to blow my mind. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I'm, I want it because I like those movies. I haven't seen, um, I still haven't seen There's Always Vanilla. And I like uh, Season of the Witch. I don't love it. What else is on that? I can't crazies, remember. I think. Is the crazies on that? Uh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe cra- I thought maybe it was not. something more obscure, but it could be crazy. Uh, and, and crazies is uh, not my favorite of his movies uh, by any means. But yeah, I agree with you. I think it would have been a real coup for Martin to have been on that set. It just seems like it'd be nice to have those collected works together. I don't know. But I, I do hope that at some point we get a nice release of it. That's that's mm-hmm. just kind of killing me because I do love it so much. I mean, I have a couple DVDs of it that I've hung on to for years. Well, they're but, not easy to find. Yeah, now they're not really easy to find, and, and that, that just makes me sad, especially now that he's gone. When when people are sadly most likely to start digging in, they can't watch that one, you know, and that's the one mm-hmm. I feel like would connect with more people than almost anything he's done if more people would see it. So I, I think it's there's never a bad time or reason to, to bring it up in my mind. So uh, the 20s drift... Yeah, and, and and I I guess I'm kind of biased here. The reason I wrote Drift is because mine were. So I'm not saying <laughs> yours were, but I got to say my 20s like were, you know, just fucking couch surfing and being a bum. I don't know what the hell I was thinking, you know, my, my life. I mean, I got a lot of things done as well, but I definitely lived the drift, the yeah. perfect drift of the 20s. So that I don't want to shade it. If, you know, if you want to p- pick a preppy movie about an overachiever in their 20s, that's fine too. Oh, you, know? well, you have the wrong idea about me. Well, um, I... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I was, I, I, I would call it a little bit of a drift. I mean, you know, I may have mentioned on the show that I went to college and then ended up working at a video store in my college town after I graduated for at least a couple years and then finally moved to Los Angeles and, and you know, that's a whole other chapter. But mm-hmm. uh, I, there was definitely some drift to it, you know. I mean, video stores go hand in hand with drift. I mean, that I was think a big so. part of my life too. It's, I, I it's think like... <laughs> it's, a, it's a very 20s drift kind of job. I mean, although I had the job late in late in my 20s for sure. Yeah. So I, I had a couple for this that, I again, I was thinking, and I won't go too hard into this, but I, I wanted to put real genius in here. First thing you should do is get even with Kent. It's a moral imperative. Because I haven't right. talked about that movie yet, and I love that movie. It's one of my favorites. It's a hilarious movie. It's so good. And the Blu-ray just came out. I just got the Blu-ray, and it looks good. It's got a commentary. But I, I rewatched it, and I'm like, yeah, I just does, this isn't really about the 20s drift. I mean, it's really... <laughs> Mitch's story and Mitch isn't you know Mitch is like 15 and Val Kilmer is I mean I guess you could qualify that as a but these guys are much more motivated and I guess I think 20s drift and I kind of think slackery kind of people mm-hmm. and 
So I, again, my mind being too literal about the whole topic, but then I went back to one that I almost picked for the 90s cult movies, and that's Kicking and Screaming from 1995. Oh, yeah. I'm going to Prague. So how will that work if you're living with me in Brooklyn? Well, it'll be the same, except I'll be in Prague. It's time to turn to your friends for support. How about worst-case scenarios after graduation? Jane dumps me to move to Prague. I spend the rest of my life with you idiots. How long can you avoid commitment? Huh. Want to get married? Yes. Yes, I do. I didn't want to have any attachments. Yeah. Me too. Hi. Compromise. Whatever you want. What, what do you want to do? I don't care. What do you want to do? Before Alan, right after your mother, I went to bed with a woman. She was dead. I'm not really ready to accept you as a human being yet. Honesty. Can we uh, just admit some lies that we may have told each other? I didn't say a word. I thought he knew. So express yourself. No, I can't stand you. I can't stand that. Is that a pajama top? No. <laughs> yes. Your hair drives me crazy. God, I begged you to stand Prozac. Just get out. Just remember to follow your heart. Just get out. Out. Go. <laughs> Use your imagination. If we were an old couple, dated for years, and I reached over and kissed you, you wouldn't say a word. I mean, you'd be delighted. Probably. Face the world. What do you mean? I just wish we were an old couple so I could do that. Kicking and screaming. Are you wearing mascara? No. Yes. Which I saw, you know, when I was in my 20s, and... I remember we rented it from the cool video store, uh, not my video store because I worked at Blockbuster and we didn't get some of those cool indie Vidmark titles like Kicking and Screaming and some others. And so I, we rented it from the other store and my roommates and I watched. It was one of those things where we had a tradition where we were, it, The Simpsons was in heavy rotation. It was in syndication. It had just feels like it had just gone into syndication, but probably had been in syndication for a little while, but we would watch it every, we'd record it every day at 6.30 or whatever, and I had two roommates, and so whoever was home first would watch The Simpsons, and then they'd watch it again with the second roommate, and they'd watch it a third time with the third roommate, and this movie was kind of like that. Uh, you know, I watched it, and then I, I had to show both my roommates, so I watched it like three, three or four times in the couple days that I had it, and... I, I, that wasn't my regular habit. It's never been my regular habit. So it, it's definitely a movie that totally I was I felt like I was headed into living um, at some point in my life. It's it's just I don't know. I I just love the vibe of these guys who've graduated from college and are still living on campus, basically. Which again is something I ended up doing. Hmm. And they go to the same bar, you know, every night of the week, which is also something I, my friends and I did. We had a bar called the Plaza in Madison that we used to go to. And it was our, and I'd, sometimes I wonder if I know that we were all, especially one of my friends and I were, were huge fans of this movie. And I feel like there was some sense of trying to emulate this film in some way <laughs> that was conscious or subconscious. I don't know. But, um, that's one of the first films I saw at that age where I watched the movie and thought to myself, oh, that's how I'm going to be. <laughs> like, that's kind of my life. I still like, you know, younger than them a little bit. But I definitely I guess that came out in 95 and I went to college in uh, the, the next year, I think. So I remember seeing it and really identifying like deeply with the characters in it, yeah. uh, especially Eric Stoltz. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Eric Stoltz plays a bartender who's been going to school for like 10 years. He's like a sort of a uh, hanger-on of the group. He's just not really part of the main group. The main group is like 
uh, four guys, mm-hmm. and it's it's Josh Hamilton and Carlos Chris Eigman, who I love, who was in some Whit Stillman films. Carlos J. Cott, who I also love, he plays Otis, who's like my favorite character in the movie. And then this guy, I forget the guy who plays Skippy, but anyway, they just sort of hang out together. They have a certain camaraderie. They give each other a hard time, but it's very specific and it's it's esoteric and rever- like referential. Like they're they play little trivia games with each other, and I don't know. There's just something I really loved about it, and that felt really real to me. It felt like like guys that even though they're sort of losers in the movie i was like i'd hang out with those guys i really like that vibe well because i think when you're in college it's not losers that's the funny thing that's the thing and and your 20s in general you can get away with all this crazy behavior and and drifting and like you know it's it's the the slacker we came from the slacker gen right yeah you know and and so i don't think they are losers it's the problem is once they get older once we get into our next topic that's when <laughs> that's when that behavior uh, solidifies it's true uh, i also like it. that uh elliot gould plays josh hamilton's dad uh, yeah that's right that's and right. they have a weird relationship that's based mostly around talking about basketball and i there was a point in my life when i felt I feel much more connected to my dad now than I used to. Um, I talk to my dad on the phone basically every week for the past, uh, it's been a good year and a half or so. I mean, but before, does he listen to PCP? Uh, he has, he has All listened right. to a couple, um, on a couple road trips. They've heard my mom and dad have heard a couple, but, right. uh, they, they are aware of it. Like my dad, like I talked to my dad enough that he knows about the show and I talk to him about it, you know, and things like that. So anyway, I feel much more connected to him now, but there was a time when I felt like I couldn't talk to him about anything, but maybe sports or th- when I was into sports, which has been a long time. So there's a sense of that disconnected, like we're talking around, you know, things that or avoiding things that we really should be talking about or that mm. you know so i like that relationship but i like him in the movie he just gives it a little boost and um yeah i don't know it's just an interesting portrait of of that time in your life you know i mean the the very beginning scene josh hamilton's character gets broken up with by his girlfriend played by olivia dabo and she's moving she's going to prague to study there and so just this sense of like people's lives it's sort of like you you have at the end of high school, but even more definitive. People's lives start shifting, and people start to literally drift away from each other. And I've just always been fascinated by that time and and who you stick with. Who do you still stay in contact with, or do you just start completely over again? And um, so I don't know. This one, I, I and it's really funny. I mean, that's the other part of it that I haven't really talked about. It's, it's just really funny. Yeah. There's just so much ridiculous stuff. In the movie, little asides, little jokes, little throwaways. There's a scene with um, where Carlos Jacot goes to work at a video store, and Dean Cameron plays the guy running the video store. And so you've got to be ready at all times, because if a customer wants to know where a movie is, you've got to be prepared to tell him what section it's in. Sure. Okay. For example, if I were to say Turner and Hooch, what would you say? Comedy. Close. We've got a special section for dog pictures. Dog buddy pictures. Oh, I see. Look at this. Someone put Terms of Endearment in with prison movies. Oh! Twit. It's supposed to go in terminal illness. What are your influences? Um, Samuel Fuller. All the good ones, all the other ones. Yeah, yeah. You know, just like just stupid stuff. And, 
anyway, there's just so many great little pockets of things in the movie that I love. So it's one of I, my all time favorites. I know I've told you when I heard about it, but I, I haven't probably told anyone here. But uh, I found out that uh, Chris Eichmann was a listener of Shockwaves. That's awesome. Which blew my mind. Like of all people, because it's one thing when it's horror people, but when it's a guy who's like, you know, last days of disco movies and he, he saw one of my co-hosts on a set of a movie he's directing. He's actually directing a horror film. Chris Eichmann is. And he which is also said to awesome. my which is also awesome, yeah. And he said to my co-host, he was just like, uh, I love that Becca's laugh. Never lose that crazy laugh. That <laughs> or is something awesome. Like, and I was like, whoa, like he listens to our show? So that was definitely one of those weird, uh, to me, celebrity moments. But uh, yeah, I've always liked him in movies. He always kind of plays the kind of a bit of an asshole, a bit cocky, but he's funny and sarcastic. And I've never not liked him in something. He's he's always entertaining. Yep. Yeah, that's a good pick. That's a movie I, I, really, I really like. Well, My 20s Drift, I definitely loved it. The first one is... Uh, just an extension uh, it's it's not the main one because it's too hard to find it is by the same director as the last one it's called the mother and the whore quand quelqu'un nous quitte et qu'on souffre on ne sait jamais très bien pourquoi il n'y a pas que l'amour il y a l'orgueil l'amour propre je l'avais pris mon parti uh, by Jean Eustache, 1973, um, or Le Maman et La Poutine or something. Uh, and it, it stars um, France, uh, Francois Truffaut, regular. Uh, um, uh, Jean-Pierre Lowe. Leo. Yeah, but I can't, that, the fact that I forget Jean-Pierre Leo's name is embarrassing. Uh, who I, El, Stolen Kisses came very close to being on my Oh, list. that's great. That's a, easily oh, wow. my favorite Truffaut. Yep, and, same here, same here. Yeah, it's not even close. Like, that is his, his movie to me. Uh, and he's great in that. This is, this is, well, Stolen Kisses might be his best performance this one's fascinating it's black and white it's three and a half hours long uh but it was like critically like praised through the roof when this thing came out um it came out right at the perfect moment like of kind of um you know kind of not sexual revolution it's a little after that was 73 but it's asking the question it's basically he lives with his girlfriend and then another girl comes to stay and they have a they have a threesome and then they basically decide that they could both have a relationship with him and it's him also as a slacker in his 20s hanging out with his like bum friend listening to vinyl and it's just got this like it's really slow pace so that's you know for a three and a half hour movie that's also paced like real life it might sound like a detraction but it's also really funny and strange and you'll like it's the kind of movie you will literally identify yourself in many different moments of the movie and the title is very literal like it's looking at a guy trying to have that relationship with one woman who he wants to more or less be like his mother and look after him and be his his love girlfriend and the other one who he wants to do stuff with and treat like a whore and there are the the girl's arguments is that no one's a whore and no woman is a whore and it's it's a it's very you know it's political in that sense but never in a dull sense and it's just a great movie new yorker films put it out and so there's a vhs tape of it but they've never even put it on dvd i have no idea why um and it's just what well, i've got the poster for it i lent it to um a movie theater here that played it last year and it, it's just, you know, a great, great, great movie. And so I'd, I would highly recommend if anyone knows anyone at New Yorker or uh, what was New Yorker, I would love to know if that's something that could um, happen one day. So that's one I identify with hugely. Uh, it's super hard. But even if that was easy to find, this one will be my number one with a bullet. It's probably also one of your number ones with a bullet. And so this will surprise no one when I pick for my 20s drift, Tulane Blacktop. Nice. You got nothing in that engine but a bunch we'll of wheel out. Sure we'll race. You're damn right we'll race. For pink. Pink slips? You mean for cars? You want to race for the whole shot? 
That's right, all a rolling stock. Where to? You name it. In that case, smartass, Washington, D.C. Right, Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. Just second man. No, you're on. You're definitely on. I was going there anyway. Show me how to do it. It was all a matter of time. I was holding out for us doing an on the road episode. All the this, I, I, it would have been in my first fucking episode, but I kept thinking well, eventually we're going to do car movies or road movies. And I was like, you know what? This is even better here because that's what this is about. This movie is literally about. And I definitely was a kid who was like uh, in my twenties, traveling, uh, reading Albert Camus, and being fairly not perp- like not annoyingly existential, but definitely wondering and being drawn to literature about not understanding what the point of things is like how does it all come together and this movie has uh starring james taylor uh dennis wilson as buddies in their 20s who are literally i mean you know they don't even have names it's just the you know the the driver and the mechanic they are they do you know drag racing they are just drifting and they are literally drifting across america with no, you know nothing then they run into a girl who's a drifter Lori bird played by young Lori bird who uh you know monty ended up uh, in a relationship with later and then warren oates comes in and even though warren oates is the older character i think it's really relevant to this list because uh, Warren Oates plays GTO and he plays this guy who can't stop bullshitting. He just can't stop spewing bullshit. You know, he, <laughs> that's why that's why I've always thought this is one of his absolute best roles, because uh, ironically, it's the opposite of cockfighter. He he literally anything out of his mouth is horseshit, but he can't stop talking. He hasn't got the ability to be silent because he's so probably in, so scared of him, like reality of who he probably is psychologically, if the, in a Freudian sense, that he just has to keep talking to make situations okay, and he has to be liked, and he has to be popular, he has to be cool, and he represents the next section we'll be going, so to me, I also viewed this film as maybe the absolute perfect connective movie between the 20s drift and adulthood, because one character's trapped in that the fear of that permanence of adulthood and is trying to reclaim some of the youth, but can't, it's impossible. And the, the young people see right through it. And, uh, when I love the line early on where he goes, man, are you trying to blow my mind? (laughs) (laughs) I always love that. But it's, so basically the, the simple, it's a super simple story. Uh, they just decide to race for pink slips and Laurie bird kind of goes between the two cars, having relationships in a way with both of them showing she's like the ultimate drifter, you know? Uh, and, uh, Warren Oates also picks up some hitchhikers. One of them being Harry Dean Stanton at That's a great a, at a great scene. Great scene. <laughs> uh, every scene with Oates in this is. I, I've always promised that when after I turn, I think he was forty three when he did this. I've always said when I'm whatever age he is in that movie, I will start doing that as my Halloween costume. <laughs> <laughs> it's all dresses GTO, nice. uh, but I need that sweater and the ascot. Oh. Uh, and the one glove but it's it's really a special movie to me it's one of my like you know it's permanent place in my top 10 and i know you're and i know it means a lot to you you've got it in your office right i I do have a poster in my office yes most expensive poster i own yes it's one of mine too yeah um and it's there's just something about the way these characters relate it's that it's not romanticized this is the movie that defines monty this is both as a person and the way he sees cinema the differences and or the similarities, the changes between a film like uh, Rebel Without a Cause and mm-hmm. 15 years on, Two-Lane Blacktop, mm-hmm. where in Rebel you've got Dean always wanting to articulate and to know, mm-hmm. aggressively, frequently, frustrated and bottled. In Two-Lane Blacktop you've got two young people who seem to have moved beyond uh, 
a form of commu communication <laughs> by speech. All right, but that but that's not the filmmaker. That's that's the society. You know, the the world changed in those fifteen years, so that you know my film reflects teenagers or, or young adults uh, of a certain period, and uh, Rebel Without a Cause represents a different period. I don't think that uh, that that has anything to do with uh, simplicity or complexity of of storytelling. I it think. just reflects the times. It reflects the times. Nonetheless. Yeah. Almost all your films seem to strip things away. No, I think that it's true that, that uh, you know, given, I mean, I think that uh, Nick Ray might have told Tulane Blacktop differently than I told it. And I think that's good. I, I, you wouldn't want uh, every filmmaker to tell a story the same way. Otherwise, you know, why have more than one filmmaker? He is definitely an existentialist, and I think this is the closest movies ever came to putting that on screen, what that means, this kind of inability to define uh, the point of things and a search for something internally. And it's just with these with these characters, especially the casting of James Taylor, I think is a big part of that because – there, it sometimes feels like there's nothing there. It's like air or something. He's just a. It's a. It's such a strange presence that he brings to this film, and you know, it's one of those movies. Whenever somebody doesn't dig it, I, I take that as a bit of a sign with them because it's a movie that I just think if it doesn't connect to you, I'm always kind of. I'm always a little surprised by that when somebody uh, it doesn't speak to them because I think it's a really special film, and it didn't do Monty wonders because it came out very close to. There was being made at the same time as Easy Rider, but it came out a couple years later. They're actually in production at the same time because of studio changes. And so I think that hurt him because Easy Rider is a has a point and it's like driving the point home. And it was like a, it was a it was a movement film. And Monty wasn't trying to do that. He was just trying to show this like this world that he knew and these people. Uh, and I think that uh, when it finally came out, it it just didn't connect uh, in the way and was considered, you know, uh, a failure, a great script by Rudy Wurlitzer as well. And originally, something you might not know, you might, it was a kid's film. It was written as a kid. The original script was like a kid's film, kind of like um, Herbie. And really? He, yeah, and he, he really had no interest in that. So he worked with Wurlitzer to take it in a very different direction. So there's still like, you know, little things like the type of cars. If there's remnants of what was meant to be a Disney or, you know, or Universal, whoever was, kid's film, which kind of blew my mind when he told me that. Um, wow. But it, it's it's just such a it's such a brilliant uh, movie, and thank God we do have a great. Cause like when I was young, this is something you could only see on VHS. Uh, thank God now Criterion have this great Blu-ray, yeah. um, so that's the way to discover it. Yeah, definitely. I I, I just love that it, you know they what Monty's been called the American Antonioni or whatever, and that doesn't do him justice necessarily. But I would say this movie and some of Antonioni's movies go hand in hand in, in some respects and that they represent a certain kind of existential cinema that I find really potent, like just really like the kind of stuff that I, I watch and it's not, it's not necessarily like a palate cleanser, but it's something that I watch and just like it gets my brain, it pushes my brain into a different place every time I do it just because it's so not your standard narrative film you know and you, you talk about the Easy Rider thing I mean Easy Rider is so much more ultimately political and has like this really you know ending that just totally galvanizes people and, and just represents a, a lot and, and got people you know angry and, and I guess you know worked up and, and the way that Tulane ends is just a totally different thing 
Uh, yeah, without it, spoiling it, it's a, it's literally becomes about cinema itself without saying more than that. It's, totally. it's kind of fascinating. Yeah, it's, and it just but it fits the movie so perfectly. Once you've seen it a few times, you're just like, wow, this is the. It's almost like the only way it could end, but not, not the way that you would ever. Ex- I don't know. I can't. I can't place it. But but yeah, I love that ending, and it's that's it bums me out that certain movies get lost. You know, like I I forget what the issue was. It was music rights, but this movie wasn't on home video forever. And I remember when the Anchor Bay VHS tape came out, I was really excited because I had heard about it for years, and finally getting to see it was such a big deal. But that just really damages a movie. You know, when it isn't allowed to percolate in in the cultural you know conversation either from television viewings or home video uh rentals it just it loses some of its ability to affect people and it takes a lot longer to build up that cachet that this movie deserves and it's it's getting there now because of criterion and and whatnot but it's still not recognized as the classic that i think it is Although, you know, it is a little bit more cerebral than than Easy Rider and, and such. So maybe it's... And just... so is Monty. That's the thing. Oh, well, yeah, he, clearly he's from He's kind of wired that way. Yeah. I yeah, he and Dennis Hopper... He and Dennis Hopper couldn't be more different people, it sounds like, no, in a lot of ways. I mean, no, totally different people. I mean, and, and, you know, it's funny that one got fame and kind of squandered and the other one kind of lived in squander. Yeah, I think one of the things you're reacting to when you talk about like him and Antonio is like something cinema does very well, especially art cinema, is silence and internalness. And both both of them are really good at not scared of that. They're not uh, because if you're seeing this stuff in a cinema, you're held captive by it. So they can give you they can do almost nothing at times and you're still interested. Whereas these are kind of movies that will never exist in the Netflix age, the age of you just being able to turn something off after a few minutes and you know, who cares, uh, disposable viewing, it just won't be made. And so I think, I think there's something just, uh, really, uh, well, you know, we say pure cinema, uh, about this movie in terms of movement and character and the way they talk to each other. I mean, besides, and the funny thing is it's not all like that. Cause every time Oates is on screen, it's like nonstop verbal diarrhea and funny and crazy, <laughs> but the other characters are also minimal. Yeah, it's and, uh, the, one of my favorite things. There's two things. So I, I, cause I got to what, you know, I actually watched this one time with Monty and the, the one thing he did is he broke down the key scene where he, uh, Oates gets a Coke and they all kind of meet up at a gas station and he kind of, um, you know, uh, the 180 degree line, he did a, like a little lesson for us where he broke down how he shot that. And cause it's very complex, it keeps changing angles and perspective. And I remember just sitting there going, am I really sitting in the guy's bedroom who made this movie, who is now telling me how he shot the scene. Like of all the experiences I've had since being an adult who's obsessed by movie, that was probably my favorite moment where I was like, wow, this is just surreal to me. But then, then there's a great scene where James uh, Taylor is just standing. I think it's uh, right after that. He's talking to Laurie Bird, kind of um, the, the scene talking about cicadas. <laughs> yeah. And, and there's a frame and, and uh, Monty pauses the film and he goes, and if you could see to the right of the frame right now, you would see Joni Mitchell just standing there because she was there for the entire film because they were James Taylor and her were hooking up. Oh, wow. But you would never know it. You watch this whole movie and you wouldn't think like Joni Mitchell standing just to the left. How crazy is that? That's and awesome. she was a huge star at the time. So uh, I was like, oh, that's great. Like just, but anyway, super special movie. If you haven't seen it, you're in for, uh, you know, in for a treat and uh, it's just one of the best. Yeah. Full PCP recommendation. Oh yeah, definitely. Double Both barrels. Okay. So, on to adulthood. Oh man, fuck that. <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't know what this says about me that I that I picked this movie. Uh, I, I I'm not sure, but um, I I picked Shoot the Moon from 1982. Oh man, that's a great choice. The electricity of Midnight Express 
the excitement of fame. One man has captured them both. His name is Alan Parker. He creates the kinds of films that have never happened before. Now, it's happening again. Why did Daddy leave us? Well, I don't think he left you. I think he left me. MGM presents Shoot the Moon, an emotional portrait of an American family with powerful performances by Albert Finney. This is my house. I fixed up this house. And Diane Keaton. Well, you're not at this house anymore, George. Remember, you walked out feet first. And a screenplay by two-time Academy Award winner, Bo Goldman. Divorce. I think I'm gonna have to. What happens to me? I mean, it's it's a it's a rough one. Yeah, but it is a great choice to get. Yeah, go over and check out. Um, I forget which month it is, but um, 80s all over talked about it, and they definitely gave it their recommendation. I'm fully with them, but I had actually put that on my list back months and months ago when we first. This that was actually one of the first movies that I came up with for some reason. Again. I don't like what that says about me, but regardless, it, the the story is of a 15-year marriage that is dissolving, basically, and the, the husband and wife are played by Albert Finney and Diane Keaton, and they have four girls, and so the story is sort of about the family and how the girls are affected, and it's 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 rough, man. It's a rough movie, but the opening scene really sets the tone you have Albert Finney comes downstairs. He's in like a tie and uh, he looks like he's going out to some kind of a party and you can hear Diane Keaton in the other room with the girls. They're putting on makeup and getting her ready. And he goes and sits in his office and just starts sobbing. And you're just like, Oh man, okay. (laughs) Something's not right. Mm -hmm. Um, And just from there, it just really, it gets ugly. It gets really ugly. And it's, I don't know, there's something about it that, again, I guess I appreciate that a movie that can really depict the difficulties of marriage because so many rom-coms and romantic films are all about the, you know, happily ever after. And I'm not here to say happily ever after is bullshit, but I mean, it's that idea and, and sort of indoctrinating people into that idea through popular culture, through movies and whatnot is a bit misleading because, uh, and I don't want to sound like some kind of jaded um, married guy, but marriage is, it's its not an easy thing. And, and you may, maybe you know some people that have it easy, but I, I can almost guarantee that it's not always easy. It's just, it's a tough thing to bond yourself to a person for your life. You know, there's just, I, a, I might take the other side of that and say, it's always hard. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I want, I want to, I want to sort of err on the slight side of, positivity and not sound like that but I'm probably with you I really do believe that and it's not just my own personal experience I just I think it's really hard like I said to to be with another person for the entire of your life and then to bring kids into it I think that is the other thing is is there are married people I know that don't have kids and there are married people I know that have kids and it's obviously always going to be more stressful once the kids are involved and once the you know the financial responsibility of the kids is involved uh, it's it's just difficult. So, like I said, 
Well, no one trains you to be in a relationship with more than one person, right? No. You think about it. That's the crazy part of life. Like uh, a marriage of just two people without kids, you you know, you're still not – there's no reason it necessarily will change that much except finances uh, and financial pressure. But when you add kids, you're actually no longer in a relationship with one person. You're now in a relationship with multiple people. And then as that – if that exponentially grows, that is all cutting into the time, energy, passion that you could ever give to that other person. So there's no way it cannot change. It's impossible. you know, chemically, physically, mentally impossible. So it, it really, and, and I think, you know what, people have always asked me, and it's funny, I think this might be the best answer. People always ask me what I think uh, uh, I'd pair possession with. And now that I think about it, this movie makes a lot of sense. It's, oh, it's yeah. the drama, drama version of the same emotions. It's dealing with that same, uh, just like Kramer. Kramer's a little too mainstream, but dealing with the same kind of thing. But it's dealing with that, the anger and rage that you could feel of the not being, I don't want to say respected, but the other person taking the child and, and fighting over something that you both once loved and saying you shared that now you're at odds on. And I think it's, it's a fiery and dark uh, thing. Yeah, no, I love that idea that you're talking about, about this and the parallels with possession. Cause yeah, emotionally it's really raw and it's, I don't, I don't know. Um, yeah. I was just thinking that Kramer versus Kramer for me, I've never been a real big fan of because I feel like it really, it it really is, it feels like a rah, rah, rah for Dustin Hoffman because Meryl Streep just like bails and you don't really get her side of it. And I've always kind of hated that. I've always been kind of annoyed by the superhero dad saves the day kind of feeling. And it's a little um t- like a TV movie that just happens to have great actors. Yes. You know? Yes. And so to me, that's a, just less, this is totally not like, this is very unconventional and surprising. I only saw this one like maybe five years ago. Um, somebody told me about it and I checked it out and I was like, whoa, how did I not know about this one? It's like one of those really raw uh, and I love the shooting style. I have like a long dolly shot following him and uh, the thing with the typewriter yeah, it's a it's a it's a pretty wild uh, performance by Finney too. Yeah, he's I I don't know I I feel like Finney is we use the term you know, underrated a lot, but he's one of those guys that I think you get a certain idea. The other one that I actually almost considered for this slot is Two for the Road, another Finney mm-hmm. movie about a dissolving marriage. Which I don't I don't know what that says about him that he's mm-hmm. in two of in my mind the best movies about dissolving marriages ever made. But yeah, I don't know Alan Parker. You know he did Fame, he did Midnight Express. He's a he did Mississippi Burning. He did Mississippi Burning. He I'm did a big fan of that one. He did Bugsy Malone. Mm-hmm. He did Pink Floyd The Wall. I mean, he's a really interesting director and a guy who has The Commitments. That's a really great movie. Oh, yeah. Oh, great movie. Yeah. yeah. So, and Birdie and Angel Heart. I mean, he's got a great, great resume. But of all those movies, I feel like Shoot the Moon is one of the ones that gets passed over the most. And for me, I think think it might be my favorite of his films although uh, he's got some really good stuff in there but but yeah like i said this one it's a tough thing when you're when you you do a show like this and you're recommending movies and you're basically telling people yes this movie's a bummer but go watch it anyway and i know that for me I, i my first instinct is always like no no i'm not feeling that but there's something cathartic about a movie like this that really, I think if you're having difficulty with a relationship or a marriage, it's not the kind of thing where you look at it and go, well, at least I'm not that bad necessarily, 
but there is something about watching it and seeing how two people aren't connecting that may do something for you and help you figure some things out for yourself. And I, it really does just make you more conscious of both perspectives for me. I mean, it doesn't do the, it's not fully even handed as far as that goes, but I feel like it does one of the better jobs of allowing both the man and woman to have sort of their perspective on the thing. And so I think that helps. And I, I think it's worth recommending on that level, you know, because I feel like everybody's got static you know, in their, in their lives and in their relationships. And this kind of movie comes along and can, can be therapeutic in my mind. And depends why you watch movies. Like you're talking about the depressing factor. It's like, I can honestly say I don't watch, I've never gone to movies or watched movies to be cheered up. Like that is not how how I approach them. It just hasn't been. I I just, it doesn't come. It's not part of my lexicon. I would, I wouldn't put on, you know, I wouldn't be putting on the burbs just, uh, just to make me feel better. It's not like that. I, I watch movies to uh, look into worlds, you know, and and if those worlds and like learn more about and not academically, it's not like I'm wanting to learn more about the human condition. I'm not thinking like that, but that's what I'm drawn to. And I remember seeing a Fassbender film once where they they kind of were making fun of themselves, where somebody comes out of a movie and goes, why would you watch that film? It looks so depressing. Yes, I only go to depressing films. When I walk out of the film, it makes me feel so much better about my life. <laughs> and, and, and it kind of I could kind of understand that for a moment because I was like, yeah, because I'm not going for escape and i think a lot of people do watch movies i think especially mainstream cinema often does provide what people call escapism i've never once thought of movies as escapism for me it's not to escape anything it's to i guess deepen in my mind and it doesn't mean it's always i'm sure there's times where i subliminally you know i'm trying to escape things and maybe i've been escaping my whole life maybe i've lived a whole life of just escape and didn't know it you know and then you wake up and realize it's you know it's all over <laughs> I'm, I'm going on my mark Marin skid now <laughs> but i do think think that everyone treats that differently because some people are really going to use cinema for a reason so i think uh if people can uh, you know get into a mindset of oh, i'm not just going to watch a movie to be entertained or escape saying let me just see what this is then these movies will probably have a different resonation with them yeah definitely. uh but yeah i'm a big fan of that uh so adulthood is tough it's it wasn't tough to pick the movie it's just uh, tough uh i call it the pre- uh, there's a great novelist uh, called richard ford he's a contemporary novelist he wrote uh uh, Independence Day and the Sports Writer, these great books about this kind of period. I just think they'd make great movies by like Ang Lee, kind of ice stormish. And he talks about this it, brilliantly. He calls it the permanent period. And it's because all the fucking bad decisions and shit you did and got away with now become permanent. The thing that kind of slides off your back in the 20s or the, all those extra cheeseburgers you ate or the bad uh, not just sleeping around with women and not settling down all affects you in this period. And the decisions you make more or less get set in stone and the job you have and the th- skills you have. Now you don't get much room for wiggle for the most part, not saying 100 percent. And I find that to be a very interesting idea uh, it's the crystallization of your life in some ways which is a shame because your life has been moving and changing and the world's open and then suddenly you realize wait a minute there aren't as many options as there used to be like right now i couldn't just move to new york city it would be almost impossible you know without things being set up in advance but up to the moment i moved to la i lived like this i lived just whatever i wanted to do i tried so i think it's a very interesting change in in one's life um and it, you know it doesn't have to be as firm as that of course if you want to rage against that but in general it is uh so i picked a, i picked a couple uh, one that i'll only touch on briefly again it's a part of this uh almost impossible to find list uh it's for some reason it's the only film that's really hard to find by uh, maurice Pila from 1974 and it's called the mouth agape and it is just one of those movies that i saw a retrospect of all his films and i liked 
I like them all and some I love, but this film is the one that I was like, Oh yeah, I get this movie. It is, uh, uh, mother is dying and her son and daughter come home, uh, to kind of, you know, uh, be around her while she's dying and her husband's unfaithful and is cheating on her. And then the son is basically just like the father. And we kind of see all their behavior around the center point of the mother, but it's just that one film that really got me thinking about, uh, adulthood and the responsibility to your older parents and, uh, stuff like that. And it's funny and sexual and dark. And it's just, uh, if, if you're into these French films, as we're discussing on this episode, I think, uh, uh this is one definitely to, to seek out. Uh, and I think, uh, there's a, what is it? Masters of cinema. Is that a title? Uh, a, Yep. Thing. Yeah, I think it's Masters of Cinema disc um, from in Europe. Anyway, it's a great gem of a little movie. And my pick, which is also, I think, one of the best films of all time slash best film of that, one of the best films of the 80s. And it ties in perfectly to the start of our episode and why we didn't talk before. But it is the one time Harry Dean Stanton was the lead in a movie, and that is Paris, Texas Beautiful. by Boom Vendors. 1984. I can't even hardly remember what happened. Uh, have you seen Jane or talked to her? <laughs> we thought you were dead, boy. How long have I been gone, do you know? Four years. Is four years a long time? <laughs> it is for a little boy. There will be no safety zone. I can guarantee you the safety zone will be eliminated. What's out there? I gotta go away now. Why? Because I'm going to find her. How's it going? I want to find her too. This film would have been on my list regardless. It was just so interesting, you know, when he passed. And, and you look, I don't get... Uh, I don't get overly sad when some some people die because I just look at the just absolute enormity and beauty of and you know of of the existence he got to have. He's ninety one years old. That's mind blowing given the kind of life he lived. He lived it uh, from all all accounts. This is just a magical movie, and it's like some of the best creative geniuses of this time period all coming together on one film, and they just make this perfect movie i mean you've got a, the, the amazing score by ry cooter uh so harry dean stanton who shouldn't and I, I don't mean this in a negative way but who wasn't ever a lead and you some would say shouldn't be a lead because he's not the leading man type uh sam shepherd you know one of the other geniuses of his generation uh was at a bar with harry dean and the whole thing was a, an organic kind of thing you know and sam and i got drunk in this uh we're drinking tequila and listening to a mexican singer in santa fe and uh, we, we were talking, and I was going on, I was getting a little drunk, you know, and talking about it. I said, I'd like to do something with some beauty to it, some with, uh, we're talk I'm talking like that. I, my life is needy. I needed something to do that's worthwhile, all right? So that was the end of that. And, uh, and so a couple, I went back to L.A., and a couple of weeks later, Sam called me and said, did I want to play the lead? And I was quite taken aback and uh, pleasantly surprised and I said well I'm not, I don't want to do it unless you and them are totally convinced and uh, totally enthusiastic about me doing the role I don't want any of this shit about me being too old or whatever they that was one of the issues and I thought of that right away you know because I identified Sam with the part and uh, I knew I'm older than Sam so 
But after Sam and I had talked, obviously, uh, uh, that was an organic interview, I guess. I don't know. They were a meeting of the something. And, and it was really meant to have been Sam Shepard in the lead, which makes a lot more sense when you think about it, because he's closer. He's, a, he's the, the right age. Harry Dean was way older than Natasha Kinski, like 30 years older. He's almost 60 years old. He was like 57 when he did this role. Wow. And Vim Vendors wasn't convinced of it and didn't like would have wanted Shepard in, in the role. And, and uh, Harry Dean explains that it took a couple meetings uh, before he saw it. And then Vendors, once he saw it, he was like, OK. Yeah, that's it. Uh, and then Robbie Mueller, who's one of my favorite cinematographers of all time, is the DP. So who shot all of Vendor's best stuff, but also lots of other great movies. Jarmusch. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, he does shut down by law, which is my favorite Jarmusch, which will come up at some point. Um, so it just has all these artistic. Um, oh, and um, uh, Candy Coated Clown. Uh, <laughs> what's his name? Uh, Dean Stockwell. Dean Stockwell in a role that is when you've seen him in other movies like that you, to see him in this he's just mr normal mr all yeah totally he's such he's kind of it's kind of shocking yeah. he plays he plays his brother so basically for for those who haven't seen i know most people probably have who listen to this but if you haven't or if you haven't seen it for a while you know what's beautiful is the haunting opening it's just utterly haunting that a man harry dean standing with a beard in a black suit wearing a red baseball cap with a thing of water in the middle of like you know um uh, monument valley more or less it looks like just walking through the desert no explanation it is literally an apparition appearing and it takes a while before you start piecing this story together and an amazing score and he you know ends up getting in touch with his brother he no one's seen him for four years he disappeared and and you don't understand what happened to this guy and he uh you realize he had a son and he had disappeared right around the time where his son was born and his son's been being raised by uh, Dean Stockwell, which is his brother. And you realize at a certain point he starts trying to reconnect with his son and then says, you know what? We should find your mom. Cause it turns out the mom had abandoned uh, the child had left uh, right around the time he disappeared. And then it becomes this very just beautiful haunting, uh, you know, one of the best monologues I've ever seen in a movie, which shows Sam Shepard's, you know, incredible skill of writing. Cause it could have been on a stage that part uh, where, uh, Natasha Kinski and uh, Harry Dean Stanton kind of finally come back together, but it's through a, you know, one of those glasses that you look at, a, like a peep show glass, and he's talking through the phone with his back to her, and it's just, you know, it'd be in my top 20 scenes in cinema kind of moment. I knew these people. What people? These two people. <clears throat> they were in love with each other. The girl was very young, about 17 or 18, I guess. And the guy was quite a bit older. And he was kind of raggedy and wild. And she was very beautiful, you know? Yeah. And together they turned everything into a kind of an adventure. And she liked that. Just an ordinary trip down to the grocery store was full of adventure. And they were always laughing at stupid things. He liked to make her laugh. And they didn't much care for anything else uh, because all they wanted to do was be with each other. They were always together. It sounds like they were very happy. Yes, they were. They were real happy. 
And he, he loved her more than he ever felt possible. He couldn't stand being away from her um, during the day when he went to work. So he'd quit just to be home with her. It just yeah. all comes together, man. Yeah, that I mean, the, the, the look of that scene, and it's so unlike any other scene I've seen in a movie, yeah. and the dialogue, I mean, it's it's amazing. It's, so it's, it's, it's incredible. So it, this is a real a magical little film, and, you know, Vendors has one other movie I haven't talked about yet that I will at some point that I also think is on this level, but they're, they're the ones. He's made a lot of films that don't quite work for me, even though I, I, I always watch them and think they're interesting, but this one is, it's just like all these things coming together, and I think... You know, the fact that Harry Dean was just so good in so many things uh, and small roles. And, you know, he's the kind of actor that I think kind of like Joe Don, where me and you probably love so many movies that he has got a smaller role in. Uh, some iconic, you know, your alien, your repo man that we've mentioned, but then somewhere you forget he was in it. And then you rewatch and go, oh, my God, Harry Dean, you know. But in this, you know, he really got to be the lead. And, and the amazing part is it didn't lead to anything. I mean, it's unbelievable to me that he was never the lead after this. I mean, that's amazing. Like, you would think people watching this movie would have been like, oh, yeah, let's give him a chance. It, it didn't happen. And uh, there's a beautiful interview that Mark Maron's really down on. I think Maron really misses the point of this interview. He did an interview with, uh, he reposted it, but it was from 2014 with Harry Dean. I listened to it the day after he died and it is a brilliant interview, but because he's kind of so esoteric, Harry Dean, Maron just thinks he, he's not connecting to the guy and it kind of drove Maron crazy and he thought it was a bad interview. But it, if anything, it completely gets to the heart of who Harry Dean was and, and the kind of answers he gives. You know, he'll be like, Maron will be like, oh, you're in the Navy? And he goes, yeah, I was in the Navy. And he's like, oh, yeah, you know, you, you still you still like boats? And he goes, no, I hate boats. I hate the sea. The sea's for fishes. <laughs> and that's all he'll say. Or, or he'll, he'll ask him something deep and he'll goes, no, nah, fuck it. <laughs> it's like every second answer is like eh, it's bullshit it's all bullshit like the, the best part he's like you, you're hanging out with jack nicholson and all these cool guys in the 70s i mean that must have been amazing i mean at times it seemed they, like they've really changed now like the you, young people now are just so different he's like no it's all the same <laughs> it's just one of those great so he really held the mystery of who he was and i think he was smart just like just like lynch i think he understood that there is a certain quality to a person that if you give it away it's no longer interesting and i think he understood that one of the things people are drawn to about him is no one knew who the fuck he was outside of that role they didn't know who Harry. who the hell is he how, how how would you define that guy besides the way he looks and i think that's what uh you really kept him so interesting and in this role it's what makes him absolutely shine because you do get to see more of the picture of who that character is and it's heartbreaking it's one of those movies that just even from the opening frames is heartbreaking there's just something about it uh, the idea that and i can identify with this that a man can become or a woman but in this case a man can become a ghost in their own life you can disappear from your own life that there's that things are so complex that you can you can fuck up and then uh, you know, I have a lot of empathy for people who fuck up, you know, uh, and, and I see it all the time on Twitter and people being brought down on Twitter. Or bring, and, and there's a part of me, even when their actions are over, that that steps back and goes, man, 
you know, sucks to be that person, like sucks to realize like you, you fucked up and then, and you maybe do deserve a chance at some point in this character, we get to see that chance, you know? And I think it was pretty fascinating. Yeah, no, I, I wish Harry Dean had had more roles like this, but our, uh, lives are more enriched for even the smaller parts that he had. Cause he, he's like Scatman Crothers, you know? I mean, he just elevates any movie that he's in, you know, he's just, so amazing. I mean, I think about Straight Time. That was one I've been thinking about a lot. That's it. They're coming on. It's over. Let's go. We're still all right. We still can do it, man. Let's do it. It's over, man. Look at the people. They're coming out, man. I mean, okay, if he shows up with a 20 millimeter cannon, it's over. Just will you wait a minute, man? They'll see you. We're all right. There's five more guys in there. Come on, let's do it. We're all right. Man, God damn it! I told you I'm not taking that game without a shotgun. You can't cover a fucking poker game without a shotgun, all right? The plan was to meet your friend here with the shotgun. We go in and do the job and we leave, all right? Now, we've been sitting here all fucking night waiting for the guy with the shotgun and you want to take it with your cat pistol and I'm telling you it's very unfucking professional all right? I know we talked about that movie already, but man, he is good in that movie. You know, so good. I love him, and um, I really love him in Cockfighter. I, I think he's hilarious. He's the perfect counterpoint to what Oates has to do in that movie. Uh, and him and Oates, you know, it's fun to think because they're both from Kentucky, and then you think how rare that is to be from Kentucky to be making it in Hollywood. These two guys who are actually from Kentucky, it's kind of far out, you know. Um, but yeah, it, it, yeah. Well, he's going to come up a lot in our on our show. And so it'll be fun to always highlight what his little cameos and, you know, roles and things. Yeah. Never. We'll never forget him. No, absolutely. And and just quickly, just because they're ones that would always be on my list. I also recommend husbands by Cassavetes because it's really, that's what it's about. It's about that period. And it's a very interesting look. And because I just did the projection booth, I wanted to give a plug to the swimmer pool by pool. They form a river all the way to our house, which is, uh, is is just like the perfect bridge between that and Twilight Years. It's literally that film where it's like the end of adulthood, the beginning of Twilight Years for a character, and the, the almost the mental confusion that that creates in a character. And I think it's it's you know again one of my favorite films. Yeah, good stuff. Okay, last segment is uh, the Twilight Years, the and one this... place we haven't gone yet. Yeah, in our lives. yeah, and uh, this is another one that I I think I had the movie that I wanted almost right away. And um, actually, you know what? I, I That's not true because Going in Style was originally on this list and I shifted that to the Tarantino list. Going oh, yeah. in Style was the first movie I thought of for Twilight Years. Well, before you before you answer, I do want to say one thing about uh, here for Harry Dean. Harry Dean also, he's not on my list for this, but if you look at uh, his, his the last scene he's in of Straight Time might be the greatest <laughs> scene ever to play out Twilight Years ever uh, on screen. You mean straight story? Straight story, yeah, with between him and Barton, yeah. that might be the I greatest thought that like, might, last scene ever. Uh, you mentioned that you had him on your list, and I'm like, oh, I bet he picked straight story. And uh, I, I had thought about it, but it, because that is, I think, the most emotional. That might be one of the most emotional impact moments I've ever had in yeah, a theater. Yeah, like the I, scene, and he's in one scene, only one scene. It's the ending of a movie, and he just <laughs> crushes it. You know? Yeah, that's that movie's pretty amazing, and such an unusual entry for Lynch. Um, oh yeah, oh, but yeah. I'm so he glad he did his versatility. Yeah, yeah, I'm so glad he did it. Yeah. So my second pick is another one that I truly adore. And I think I first heard Scorsese talk about it at some point. But but this is another one that wasn't available for a long time. And it's um, Leo McCary's film, Make Way for Tomorrow, from 1937. You see, the house isn't ours anymore. The bank is taking it over. 
The only thing I can suggest is that you come to live with one of us until we can get ourselves straightened out. Well, that's awfully nice of you, George, but your father and I thought that, well, no matter what happened, that we'd always be... Oh, never mind what we thought. Father Cooper goes to live with Cora, and Mother goes with George and his wife, Anita. Does it work out? Can these two old folks, who in the last 50 years have never been separated, stand such a separation now? Is any home big enough for two families? What is to happen to Father and Mother Cooper, to these two old people so deeply in love with one another, so much of a problem to their children? What would you do if you were in their places? What would you do if you were their children? Make Way for Tomorrow is a great emotional human story about people you all know. And it is, I believe, the movie that Ozu basically adapted into Tokyo Story mm. um, years later. So if you're familiar with that story, then you'll know this movie's story. Basically, it's like an elderly couple are sort of forced to separate when they lose their house. And none of their five children is really... Basically, their kids are assholes. And so, you know, you're just dealing with, like, levels of assholeness um, from the different kids. But they're so shitty to their parents. It's it's pretty awful. I mean, to be fair, the, the old couple has some very cranky moments, some moments where you're like, wow, that is pretty fucking annoying. And uh, I can see how that, that is a little problematic. You know, they I, and I guess... You know, to McCary's credit, he's, I think, trying not to paint them as completely saintly and whatnot. But, yeah, one has to go live with one child and the other has to go live with another. And they're like 300 miles apart. And one of my favorite, most heartbreaking scenes in a movie, period, is one of the the kids played by Thomas Mitchell, who is in um, It's a Wonderful Life. He and his wife, they do a bridge night at their house and the grandmother is staying with them. And so there's like, you know, five or six card tables set up. They're playing cards. The, the grandmother hasn't heard from the grandfather in a long, in a while. And he, he calls her up and there's a lot of noise because people are playing bridge and she answers the phone and she's talking to him and everybody almost stops to listen to the phone call, but she can't hear him that well. So she's talking really loud and it's this very personal phone call and she can't have privacy because the phone is in the main room with all the people playing bridge. And so it's a very touching call, but you're kind of embarrassed and sad for the fact that she can't even have a private moment talking to her husband. And it's just, it's just kind of quietly devastating. And yeah, there's just a lot of moments of, of kids being, shitty and you know i don't know so they're they're pretty they're maybe almost a little overly villainized but they but they are there is a humanness that comes out throughout the course of the film but i know pogdanovich is a big fan of leo mccary i saw make way for tomorrow at paramount in the 60s when jerry lewis was the king of hollywood and he allowed me to run any movie i wanted at paramount so i ran 85 films until he said, will you hold it? You've run every picture in the vault. I saw Make Way for Tomorrow in Nitrate. It was a quite striking print. A couple of years after I saw it, I was having dinner with Orson Welles, and I said, have you ever seen Make Way for Tomorrow? He said, oh my God, that's the saddest movie ever made. It would make a stone cry. <laughs> he loved it. And nobody went. 
One of my favorite stories about that film is that the same year that he made Make Way for Tomorrow, Neil McCary won Best Director from the Academy for The Awful Truth. And he went up to receive the award. And his speech was, I want to thank the Academy for this wonderful award, but you gave it to me for the wrong picture. And Make Way for Tomorrow was always one of his favorites. I think it was right up there. Leo McCary did you know, Duck Soup, he did The Awful Truth. He's he's a really great filmmaker, and, and those are comedies. And this film, while it has a few comedic moments, is much more, it's a tearjerker. I mean, it's like a classic tearjerker sort of movie, and it ends in such a way that it really hits you hard, but but it it has an uplift to it as well. It's hard to explain, but but anyway, this one wasn't available for a really long time. I remember I'd gotten a bootleg of it, taped off AMC after I heard Scorsese talk about it, and fi- and you know finally got to see it before I'd ever seen Tokyo Story actually, and and it didn't lessen the impact of Tokyo Story, but it does change it for me a little bit in that you know that story is really clearly drawing from this, so. I don't know, but a really, really great performances by the old couple and definitely just food for thought, you know, uh, for people with kids and people with parents and how you deal with them and just how your relationship with them changes. And yeah, there's something about it that just really haunts me and and sticks with me every time I watch it. It's it's powerful stuff. Yeah, it's uh, that's one I have to see. I mean, I, I've I liked all the comedies I've seen by McCary, but I didn't realize he had done something more serious. I did not realize the Tokyo uh, story connection. That's really interesting. Yeah, this is it's out- kind of cool to think of Ozu being influenced by an American film. I like that. Yeah, no, I do too, and I love Ozu, and I yeah, haven't brought great. him up nearly enough on the show, but I'll find a slot for him. Late Spring is just absolutely yeah, that. Right. That could be another pick for this for me. Would be Late Spring, which is an Ozu film all about an old man living with his daughter and him sort of wanting her. To to let him go and go off and live on her own, but she doesn't really want to. And, and that one is is also, you know, very heartbreaking and, and powerful. And another one of my favorite movies. I might actually prefer it to Make Way for Tomorrow, but um, Make Way is on Blu-ray from Criterion if you're interested. Yeah, I mean, this, the Twilight years are interesting. I'd say most of the great movies that have been made tend to be about the loneliness of being old, your Umberto D's, uh, you know, your Ozu. A lot of, a lot of these films are about, uh, the difficulty of, uh, you know, just having no one to rely on anymore. You outlive people, you isolate, uh, yourself. Uh, and, and I find them to be that, that to me does depress me. You know I mean? It makes me really sad when you see, uh, old elderly people with no one there for them. And that's, you know, one reason to live a life to not be scared of, I mean, I guess it goes back to the old Scrooged, <laughs> uh, thing to live your life and connect and, you know, have friends and procreate uh, if you want, you don't have to procreate, but there's re- a reason for some of that, you know, because at the end it's just you. But I actually went in a total opposite direction of that because I posited in my brain, what would I be like or want to be like if I was that age and I connected to a man looking through his window watching Susan Sarandon cover her breasts and lemons because that's (laughs) how I roll and a little buddy of mine who I just mentioned in the swimmer Burt Lancaster in his other finest role Atlantic City what do you do when you watch me I look at you you take off your blouse then you run the water then you take a bottle of gold perfume and you put it on the sink. Then you slice the lemons. You open a box of blue soap. You run your hands under the water to feel the temperature. 
And you take the soap in your hands. And... By Louis Mal, 1980. This is such a great, like, beautiful little movie. I've always just, you know, for, and, and it's not underrated because, you know, it really was nominated for a lot of Oscars at the time. But it, it's such a great role. And it's one of the few times you see an elderly person put in this kind of role. I mean, he's, you know, he must be late 70s, I'd say, or mid 70s when he did this, uh, I would assume. And he is an aging gangster or, you know, past it gangster, really. Uh, and he was a, a two bit gangster. He wasn't, uh, you know, a dangerous gangster by any means. And it, and it opens, like I say, with this incredibly sexual uh, image of uh, Susan Sarandon at, at her prime coming home from her shift as a uh, working at a casino in Atlantic City. And she hates the smell uh, that she gets from working there. So she covers you don't know this, but she covers her uh, self in you know lemons. And it's very erotic. You know, it's just the crazy erotic way to open a movie. But Burt Lancaster, this older guy's just watching her through the window. And uh, it, it's the connection that kind of starts uh, occurring between them when her ex-husband, who's a total dropkick uh, and is trying to sell. Uh, cocaine to you know gangsters tries to gets involved with Lancaster tries to get him to help him with this shady deal and then he gets fucked up and you know it ends up being Lancaster more or less I don't want to seize the cheesy term becoming her guardian angel but it kind of because it's a lot more complex and sexualized than that because she's also the object of his desire but it is that kind of a story and it's set against Atlantic City which is a really interesting setting Louis Malle is a very interesting director you know it's to have somebody who, uh, who had made such great films in France uh, making this film. And I think the rules on this film, he was told he had to make a film by the end of 1979 and had a bunch of money to do it. And they didn't care what it was. This was the deal the producers had. You just have to have it shot by the end. So he was, he had to find a script and then quickly make this movie. And it's just, and it's great. And so basically, you know, uh, they kind of get in bad with certain hoods and he has to protect her in certain scenes. And it's about, could there actually be a romance between these two, given the crazy age difference? And it has, you know, it has a pretty melancholy uh, ending about, but it's also a very believable one. And I, th- I think he just does a beautiful job. Yeah, Lancaster's strength, man, is something you see in both this and the swimmer. It's in his eyes. There's a twinkle there that no no amount of training could ever give a person it's a quality you either have it or you don't and Lancaster had it and uh, in this role you see it at the end I, I feel like some people aren't very good when they're old uh, as performers some some are great uh, some just don't look the same and feels like different and you don't necessarily connect in the same way um, Lancaster didn't you know lose a step in this film and he's just it's an incredible movie and it's it, i think it'll surprise people it's a it's it's a it's charming and it's fun it's not as bleak as some of the things i've uh, I, I tend to pick yeah I, I love this movie uh it was one i discovered at the video store and i know i rotated it into my employee picks at least you know two or three times throughout my tenure there because i just was so surprised how much i liked it because i guess i had I haven't talked enough about Burt Lancaster, but I think I always painted him with the brush that I was provided from Field of Dreams, you know, where he's kind of a cheeseball, kind of, you know, sentimental, and he is that to a degree, but he's so much more than that. And I think he really surprised me, and and this movie in general just really surprised me. And, yeah, I've never forgotten it. He's who I want to be when I'm old. (laughs) <laughs> it's a good choice, man. If I'm going to be old, I want to I want to dress like that and uh, live in Atlantic City. It sounds <laughs> totally like my bag. Yeah, Bird is Bird is a good man to uh, to pick as your uh, your older self, I think. And it seems interestingly fitting somehow, knowing you. 
I like that. I like yeah, the that gam- the gambling side, I guess. Uh, no, I, I was just thinking the Burt side, not the gambling. Oh yeah, side that's either. true. Yeah, it's yeah, and this one is one I didn't see early. I probably only saw it mm, again. Only I feel like maybe ten years ago. Like it wasn't on my radar when I was first getting into movies by any means, you know. And and it was one that when I would hear about it, I was like, eh, it sounds like Oscar bait or something. And then you watch it, and it's really not. It's a pretty, it's a pretty uh, kind of roughly made film. It's not like uh, that polished. It's uh, it feels lived in, which yeah. is which is good because that environment, I think you need that. Uh, but anyway, yeah. If if you haven't seen it, give it a, give it a chance. Uh, it would make a good double feature with the swimmer. It'd probably be fun to see that yeah. uh, shift um, from the younger uh, Lancaster to this Lancaster. It's a good bridge movie, and that's our life cycle. Like that is, we've just gone from you know films with six year olds to films with seventy five year and eighty year olds, and. I know. I love it. I love. I love this. I could do this uh, again. It's it's a fascinating, um, and and I want. Hopefully, we'll do a list like this. Not this exact one, but something that goes into the abstract a little. Yeah, I think this is definitely like I said, something we we hope that the listeners will give a try because it's a little different and not something probably you're used to. You may already have a list of uh, a lot of the categories we've sort of covered, but likely this one has not been covered and will require a little more thought, but it's it's really a fun thing to put together and I do recommend it. So for your if you're making your list just as a reminder so you don't have to go back to the start of the episode that is childhood, adolescence, the 20s drift adulthood and the twilight years um if you want to give it a go uh yeah so uh yeah thanks for thanks for playing with me on that one uh brian for i think that was fun uh and uh we'll be back in a in a couple weeks with uh another episode uh lots a couple we have like uh, three left in the season i believe i think so something like three or four uh eps left and uh still planning some good stuff we're going to be moving into october so uh that might give you a clue as to what we might focus on for a couple episodes that's all we will say about that Tease. Tease. And thank you to the nowplayingnetwork.net that hosts our show. We couldn't do without them. Yes, indeed. Thank you all for listening. But why is it that, you know, we could pull in a guy off the street and put a camera on him and people would fall asleep after a while paying attention? They're just not, not particularly interesting. No, no, that's wrong. You disagree? Anybody can be an actor, a film. Anybody here, everybody in this room, everywhere can be a film actor if you've got a good director. Just tell them to be themselves, and uh, and they'll be brilliant. And you don't need any experience to be a film actor.